Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to be in verses 13 to 26 this morning. Matthew 19, 13 to 26 is where we're going to be. I confess that like many people in Tuscaloosa, I, I love football. I enjoy watching football. It's, a, it's, to me, one of the most fun sports to sit down on the couch and just enjoy. One of the things that I, I enjoy most when it happens, it's, it's not every play that it happens, but it, but it is sometimes, especially when it happens to benefit my team, I, I love when it happens, is a misdirection play. You can see many coaches and, and, and uh, players all scheming to try to, to, to do this sort of misdirection play where the whole team goes one way, and the ball and one player goes another way, and all of the defense is completely fooled. They all go the other way, and even the cameraman is sometimes fooled. The camera follows where he thinks the ball is going, and all of a sudden, surprise of all surprises, the cameraman realizes what he's done. He puts, his, he puts the camera on the player who is wide open and just walks into the end zone. When it benefits my team, I love that, because I think, oh no, the play is busted, and then all of a sudden I see... Nope, we scored a touchdown. What a reversal. Now, if your team is on defense, which if you're a Dallas Cowboys fan like I am, frequently is the case, if your team is on defense and they don't know where the ball is, you've got problems. Because the feeling is just reversed. As soon as you're on defense, you realize, oh no, we have failed. If you don't know where the ball is, if you're aiming at the wrong target, all of a sudden you realize failure of failures. I think when it comes to genuine repentance in the church, when it comes to what is genuine conversion in the life of a believer, I fear that many in our churches have been misdirected, are completely lost, have no idea what to look for, or are looking at the wrong thing. Jesus is going to lay out for us this morning who belongs in the kingdom. And what we're going to see is that the disciples themselves are misdirected. The disciples themselves have been fooled as to who belongs in the kingdom and who is outside of the kingdom. Look with me in our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 to 26. Then children were brought to him, that he might lay hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. 
When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this passage is challenging And I pray for all who are hearing it. Pray as we discuss its meaning and its application for our life, that you would reveal our hearts. Please, Lord, do that now. Put a mirror up in front of each and every person within earshot of them, that we may look intently at our own hearts, that by your Spirit's eyes we may see our hearts, and where our affections truly lie. Only you can do that, and I pray that you would in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the past several months, we have been in a couple of different series, and we've been in the first 20 Psalms. And we had taken a little bit of of a break, but for the year and a half, some year and a half prior to that, we were in the first 17 chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, which we've now come back to. We've been going through Matthew verse by verse, if you're new or you're just joining us for the first time. And so, as we get back into the Gospel of Matthew, and as we get adjusted here, now in chapter 19, uh, as we get back, having been gone for so long, I think it will help us if we just are reminded of the structure of the book of Matthew. And I, and I tell people this anytime we sit down and study the Bible together, or I try to remind people of this, is that understanding the book's structure can help you in interpreting the passages that are in the book itself. Because as we look at the book of Matthew and its, and its structure, it helps us understand why, for instance, we're comb- I'm combining these two passages this morning rather than preaching them separately. So I want to go back through the structure, which I think will pay dividends for us as we think about the passages this morning. So remember in chapters 1 to 3 of Matthew, Matthew is going to introduce us to this figure that is central to this this drama. Remember, he is right out of the gate, we learn that he's from the line of Abraham, that he is from the line of David, that he's the son of Joseph, the adopted son of Joseph, who is from the line of David. We also learned that Joseph is the husband of Mary and that this person is the rightful heir to the throne of David, that he is Israel's king and he is none other than Jesus Christ. We learned that in the first three chapters that he is the new and better Abraham. Why? Because through him all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. The angel, remember, comes to Joseph and he says, through him uh, he will deliver, he will uh, save his people from their sins. He tells Joseph that, the angel does. And so we know that through him all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed as he uh, saves them from their sins. We also learn that he's the new and better David because he's going to sit on David's throne. And David's throne, it was promised in 2 Samuel 7 that David's throne was going to be an everlasting throne. His, 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 his kingdom, his line was never going to end. And that, that he would have an heir eventually whose kingdom will not perish. And we learn that that is Jesus, that he is the new and better David. 
We also see in the first three chapters that he's the new and better Israel because he walks through Israel's story all the way from exile into Egypt, passing through the waters out into the wilderness, Jesus, for 40 days, and then into the promised land and conquering the promised land with the gospel. But Jesus does it without sin, whereas Israel was beset by sin on all sides. So he's the new and better Israel as well. But then in chapters 4 to 7, having been introduced to this king, now in chapters 4 to 7 we're introduced to the kingdom. And the kingdom that Jesus brings is outlined for us in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters 5 to 7 uh, particularly. And in chapters 5 to 7, Jesus lays out the values of the kingdom. And the values of the kingdom we see are really upside down. They're opposite from earthly values. We see this in the Sermon on the Mount, particularly in the Beatitudes. There at the beginning of chapter 5, where the citizens of the kingdom of heaven are described to us not as rich, but as poor in spirit. Not as boastful and strong, but as meek and mournful over their sin and over the sin of the world around them. So we have been introduced to this kingdom in 4 to 7. We were introduced to the king in uh, chapters 1 to 3. But then in chapters 8 to 10, what we see is that this kingdom that Jesus has brought and has introduced to us actually has a real-world impact on people's lives. This is not just some ethereal kingdom, some philosophical kingdom, something you mentally ascend to, but it actually has a real-world physical impact on the lives of people. In chapters 8 and 9, we see that there's nine miracles that Jesus performs where He uh, heals the blind, He raises the near dead, He calms the storm. He does lots of, uh, lots of miracles, nine in fact, in those two chapters. And then in chapter 10, He prepares His disciples to go out and give this same kingdom impact to the lives of people uh, that, he, that they're going to meet. And we know that it's not just an impact of blessing, but it actually has a dramatic impact on the world because that section in chapter 10 ends with Jesus telling His disciples, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus is coming to bring division. This kingdom is not just going to bring healing. It's going to divide families. It's going to divide friends. It's going to divide governments. And citizens of His kingdom, He tells them, are going to be persecuted for His name's sake. But even with all the miracles, even with all the good things that Jesus does, this, this isn't the kind of kingdom that most people are expecting the Messiah to bring. In fact, in chapters 11 to 13, there is a reaction to the king that we see on display. Here is the Messiah, Jesus, and we see people falling on all sides of a decision of whether or not Jesus is true. We see the Pharisees, as an example, decidedly against Jesus. This is, this is not the Messiah. This guy, look elsewhere. This is not him. We see it, people in the middle. Even John the Baptist, he's not quite sure. Sends messengers while he's in prison. Are you the Messiah? Should we look for someone else? And then there are people who are decided this, in fact, is the Messiah for sure. Which in chapters 14 to 18, if people are deciding whether or not this is the Messiah in 11 to 13, chapters 14 to 18, as Jesus begins to define discipleship for us and outline what it actually looks like, 
it only makes the problem worse. It further complicates the issue because Jesus blows everyone's mind by being completely different than they expected. He changes food laws. He bucks traditions. He walks on water. He multiplies bread. He clashes with the religious leaders and rejects them completely. He is glorified before a few disciples. There on the Mount of Transfiguration, he's lifted up and exalted before them and just completely blows their mind. And then yet, after that, tells them that he is going to be delivered into the hands of men and killed and raised on the third day. Totally blows their paradigm. So you can see through this introduction so far, these first four sections and an introduction so far of this king and his kingdom, that there is this rising tension that's happening in the gospel. And we've been building, in fact, to where we are right now in the gospel of Matthew. There are two kingdoms in this gospel that are presented to us. Two kingdoms. One is the kingdom of Jew, of the Jews, which you might as well call the kingdom of man, which is characterized by outward appearance, it's characterized by law-keeping, by traditions, by a ruling class, and by this massive brick-and-mortar structure in Jerusalem called the temple. The second kingdom that we're introduced to is the one that Jesus is bringing, which is made up of the poor in spirit, the meek, those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and what we've been building to is the chapters that we're now in, this rising tension between these two kingdoms as they come to a clash because Jesus and His kingdom are on their way from Galilee all the way down to Jerusalem. They're headed down to Jerusalem to wage a war on the kingdom of the Jews and the temple. And what is Jesus going to predict but that the temple in Jerusalem is going to be torn down brick by brick so that you won't even recognize it. And he's going to tell them that you're going to tear down this temple, my body, and I'm going to rebuild it in three days. Now, I know that's a rather lengthy summary of where we've been thus far, but it's necessary, I think, because it brings us to a question in our text this morning. To which kingdom do you belong? So if you're reading along in the Gospel of Matthew, and you've been following along with us so far, we're now at that question. The, the time is now in these chapters to decide which kingdom do I belong to? If you were to tell someone that you're a disciple of Jesus, if they were to ask you, are, are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you a Christian? What would you say? And what evidence would you give that you belong to the kingdom of Christ? Well, we have two events in our passage this morning, and both of which you're probably familiar with, you've probably read before, but I want you to see one thing from each one. First is that inclusion in Christ's kingdom is a matter of dependence. Inclusion in Christ's kingdom is a matter of dependence. We're thinking, how, 
How would I answer someone if they were to ask me, what evidence do you have that you are a, a citizen of Christ's kingdom, that you're a disciple of His? What evidence do you have? First, number one here, we're going to see inclusion in Christ's kingdom is a matter of dependence. So Jesus and the disciples, as I said, are, are on their way from Jerusalem, and they're headed down south. Or they're on their way from Galilee, sorry, all the way down south to Jerusalem and as they are on their way, as they go, they're coming across many people that they meet on the road. And in our passage this morning, in the first part there in verses 13 to 15, um, they, they, they really come across uh, one group of people. And, and it's a, a group of children, and they're brought by presumably their parents. And the hope is that Jesus will lay his hands on them and heal them. Now the disciples, you have to understand, are functionally bodyguards for Jesus as he travels. Now, obviously at this point, Jesus has gained some renown in amongst the communities as a, as a, wor- a miracle worker, as a healer, as a, you know, as it turns out, if you multiply bread and you walk on water, uh, it tends to gain people's attention. So this great miracle worker is making his way to the city of Jerusalem, and all the towns along the way are abuzz as they have a chance, maybe for the first time, to meet this miracle worker, this healer, and perhaps be healed by him. Or, or perhaps have their children healed by him. And he, he in, when he actually enters, remember, the town of Jerusalem, he, he's going to be met with great fanfare initially. This is where he rides into the town on the donkey, and, and there's the Palm Sunday kind of a event, you know. And, and so he's met with great fanfare when he comes from town to town. So it's, it's pretty common then for the crowds to gather around Jesus. And so the twelve play this sort of role of bodyguard from time to time, and they're keeping people out. And in this case, children are brought to Jesus, and the disciples are pushing them and their parents away, and they're refusing to let the kids come to Jesus. And they're chastising the adults for bringing the kids to Jesus. They should know better. Now, we think in our society of children as kind of innocent, and really the height of innocence, and, and and purity, and they're precious, and all that kind of stuff. That's not the idea we had of children even 60 years ago when they were supposed to be seen and not heard, and much less the idea they had of children back in the first century. They're second-class citizens. They have no right whatsoever to interfere with, with a man and his work, much less Jesus and his work. Even child labor laws back then are no such thing, and so uh, so essentially, we've got a bunch of second-class citizens coming and interfering with Christ and His work. And you can imagine, if the infant mortality rate is over 50%, or is way up there, then a kid that's sick is, you know, not front-page news. And so for them, this is a second-class issue. This is get out of the way. Jesus has work to do. Quit interfering. And so the disciples have in their mind that these children have no reason to come to Jesus, whether they're sick or not. They do not belong in this conversation. Jesus tells the disciples in verse 14 to let the children come to him. And I want you to pay attention to what he says because so many people get this, um, are unclear about this. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven, he says. And I want to be clear here because, again, a lot of people misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. He doesn't say that the kingdom of heaven belongs to the children but it belongs to ones like the children, to such as the children. Jesus welcomes the children. Why? Because they serve as an excellent illustration for the kind of humility that is welcomed in the kingdom of heaven. 
And this, by now, should be probably pretty normal for us if you've been following along in the Gospel of Matthew or if you've read it, because Jesus pretty regularly refers to his disciples as children or as, in some cases, as little ones. He, he prays in Matthew eleven twenty five and 26, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And in Matthew 18, 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And that's not to mention the times that he's going to tell his disciples, uh, several times that we're coming up on, even in this passage, that they need to be last, that they need to be servants, that they need to be slaves even to all. None of those words, last, servant, slave, none of those words are words of power and prominence. All of them are words of humiliation. Because, as it turns out, if you remember back in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, they actually are key to understanding the rest of the book and what Jesus is actually looking for and identifying the person who is welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus lays it out in his first sermon. It's one who is humbled. The disciples have obviously missed that because of where we're at now, where they're shooing the children away. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. To one such as these belongs the kingdom of heaven, the ones who are humbled. In fact, ones who have come to a reckoning of their own sin. Ones who are poor in spirit. They have discovered themselves, after coming to a reckoning of their own sin, they have discovered themselves to be impoverished, unworthy of Christ as their Savior. To such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Ones who actually understand more than anything their need for Christ. Church, understand this is, this is not an academic sense that we're driving at here. It's not understanding your need for Christ in that kind of catechism type way. Where we might ask a question like, what is your basic need? I have a need to know Jesus as my Savior and to have forgiveness of sins just in that kind of repetition sort of way. We often think that is what salvation is. In fact, in many places, we've made that the bar. We've made that the bar for our kids. Well, if you want to be saved, then repeat after me this prayer. Say these words. When that's nowhere in Scripture, pray this prayer. Ask Jesus into your heart. That's nowhere in Scripture. We've created that out of whole cloth. And we've given that to our kids as the bar for salvation. But nowhere in Scripture is that the bar for salvation. We have been misdirected into thinking that's what it means for someone to be saved. They've repeated after me. They've prayed the prayer. They've asked Jesus into their heart. Almost so... so We've lowered that bar. Many people have cleared it because all you have to do is repeat some words and and you're fine. Many people have cleared that bar and they're in. 
And almost without exception, I'll preach a sermon on holiness and how holiness is urgent and we, we, we must be people that are holy. We must live according to God's commandments and things like that, which is completely biblical. And I preach a sermon like that and I, inevitably during that week I will have a conversation with someone in the congregation that is torn up because of their struggle with sin. Their struggle with sin is so mighty and they feel it every single day and they feel as though they're unworthy of salvation. Some in tears because of their sin is ever before them and they've just been absolutely wrecked by their sins to the point where they feel like, am I really even saved at all? So this person, who is actually humbled by sin, which is actually what sin in the life of a Christian is supposed to do. It's supposed to humble us. But this person sits in my office and feels like they're not worthy of salvation. They feel like, of course I'm not saved. But in reality, whether they're saved or not, this person is much closer to salvation than someone who merely just prayed a prayer and repeated after me. Because this is actually what Jesus is looking for. This is what we're talking about here. This is actual salvation. Because the sin of a Christian causes him to experience the kindness and tender mercies of God all the more. That's not to belittle obedience that's required. But it is to say that sin will wreck you and will help you understand all the more your need for Christ as a Savior. A wonderful picture of this kind of humility that I'm, I'm getting at that's dependent on Jesus for everything is in Luke 18, 11-14. One of my favorite passages here, but he says, the, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even this, like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What does Jesus say? I tell you, this man, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So inclusion is a matter of dependence. It's dependence on Christ for salvation. Inclusion in Christ's kingdom is a matter of dependence. Now let's look at the contrast here. So the, the, there's the first with the children coming to Jesus totally dependent on, the, on Christ for any of their status. But now let's look at the, the flip side of this, the rich man, where we'll see that inclusion in Christ's kingdom is a matter of love as opposed to works. So this man approaches Jesus who has a different kind of need. He... he wants to inherit eternal life. He makes no apologies about that. He's going to ask Jesus for the answer to it. And notice that the disciples don't in any way impede this guy's access to Jesus. Now this guy, surely, he belongs. He's the one we're looking for. 
This man has access, and as we'll see, because the presumption on the part of the disciples is that he belongs in the circle naturally, right? This man asked Jesus, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? It's not uncommon for a Jew to think that it is a deed that will get him over the hurdle. So he asked, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And this back and forth between this man and Jesus is really interesting. So let's look at it. There are several issues with this man's understanding, and we'll see that in his questions, the questions that he asked. The first question is obviously problematic because this man is a Jew. He would know that everything that could possibly be considered good that could possibly be considered instruction for the Jews regarding eternal life would obviously be recorded in one book. Do you remember what that was? Yes, that would be the book of the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament, we would call it. All of it is recorded there. And so his question, you can hear, presumes that there has to be something else There's something beyond what we would refer to as the Old Testament, the Bible. There has to be something outside of the law. Give me the secret good deed that I can perform that will give me some sense of assurance that when the day of judgment comes, I'm going to be found worthy of eternal life. What is it? And so Jesus responds in verse 17 naturally as he would to any Jew. There's only one who is good. And by that, he means God the Father. He's the only one that's good. So God gave the commandments to Moses, and the commandments then are your instruction for life and godliness because they came from your good heavenly Father, God. So why would you ask me about what is good? There's nothing good beyond what God gives you. Turn to his words and find salvation. This is obvious. And so Jesus commends the law to him. Now, he tells him don't murder. He tells him don't commit adultery. And we know as a reader of Matthew what Jesus actually means by that. Because if you'll think all the way back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus means when he says don't murder and don't commit adultery, we know that he doesn't just mean killing somebody. He means anger in your heart. We also know that he doesn't just mean by adultery cheating on your spouse, but even lust in your heart. So we know what Jesus means when he says, keep the commandments. He means the original authoritarian intent of the commandments. God's original purpose in the commandments. Further, Jesus has just basically said God is good. And so everything that comes out of his mouth is good. Obey that. This man responds... Which ones? That's where this guy's at right now. You can hear the kind of comedic irony there when he asked, which ones? As if there are some that are better than others coming from the mouth of God who gives all good. Now, I like this guy, okay? Because I have said some really dumb stuff before. And I know in the future I will say some really dumb stuff again. The fact that Jesus is patient here with him indicates to me he's going to be patient with me too when I say really dumb things, okay? The fact that he doesn't tell him to take a long walk off a short pier is evidence to me that he is going to be patient with me as well. So I think Jesus' response to this guy, though, is very interesting. He gives uh, some of the Ten Commandments. You notice this? 
You probably picked up on that. He gives them the sixth commandment, seventh, eighth, ninth, and fifth commandments in that order, then followed by love your neighbor as yourself. And that's interesting because of what's missing. You know what's missing. The first four commandments are totally missing. And then followed by the first greatest commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Jesus will add later, mind and strength. But love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. That's completely missing too. So Jesus gives him what we would normally refer to as the second table of the law. If the commandments were divided into two halves, which most people find that there is a natural division there, commandments 5 to 10 are commonly referred to as the second table of the law. Now 10, you'll notice that it's missing from Jesus' words, but 10 is commonly joined with commandments 8 and 9 as a summary of commandments 8 and 9. And, um, and Mark even has it as don't defraud, as just kind of summing, summing up their uh, commandments 8 and 9. And so, but commandments 5 to 10 are commonly referred to as the second table of the law. And by the way, all of the second table of the law is summed up in the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. That's from Leviticus 19.18. Because all the commandments in the second table of the law are about your relationship with other people, with your neighbors. First and foremost, your father and your mother. But the first four commandments, known as the first table of the law, all have to do with your love of God. And so, they're usually summed up with the commandment from the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Which is why when Jesus is asked in another place of Scripture what the two greatest commandments are, He gives them two commands. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. He gives them the summary of the first table of the law and the summary of the second table of the law. Basically what he's saying is, all the Ten Commandments are the greatest commandments. All ten. They're good. They all come from God. They're all good. But the Ten Commandments are also a summary of all the law itself. So Jesus' response, love God, love your neighbor, is basically saying, the law of God. It's all good. What's the greatest commandment? Yes, the law. It's all good. So this man says, I've kept all these. Now remember, Jesus has left out the first table of the law completely. Love God, love, love God with all your heart and so on. Left out completely. And so this man says, I've kept all these. Now, we would probably quibble with this guy. We might want to step in and we might want to say, uh, uh, hang on just a second. You need to go back and read Matthew 5 through 7 and then tell me you've kept all these. Sure, we might quibble. But Jesus doesn't. Notice that. Because the reality is Jesus knows, and we should too, that that's mainly not his problem that Jesus is driving at. His problem is much deeper and much more fundamental than that. Remember, it's even the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, 6 that he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul's describing himself there. As for righteousness under the law, blameless. It's not as though this young man, this ruler, this rich man, or Paul, for that matter, are claiming that they are morally perfect. That's not what they're saying. What they're both saying is that they're law keepers. And that's a little bit different. They're law keepers. 
Moral perfection, any Jew would know, is reserved for God alone. And most likely, this guy knows that. And when he says, I've kept all these, and in other places, I've kept all these for my youth up, the law is there for sinners. So meaning that if this guy saying that he keeps the law, that means even in the event that he transgresses the law, he makes restitution for that transgression according to the law. That's what Paul means there too. He makes restitution for it. Not moral perfection, but that even in his sin, he makes restitution for it. But regardless, Jesus lets it go. He goes straight past it. Now remember I said Jesus skipped over the first four commandments, to love God with all your heart. Well, now I think his command to the man is coming back to the first table of the law. And it's particularly telling. Because Jesus is going to magnify what this man is really missing. Instead of, though, giving him the command, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Or perhaps even one of the commandments, don't have any other gods before him. Don't make any graven images. Keep the Sabbath. Remember it and keep it holy. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Because if he did that, if he laid that out there for him, surely the man would say, I've done that too. He doesn't say that. Instead, Jesus tests his wholehearted, whole-souled, whole-strengthed, whole-minded love for God by telling him, sell everything you own and follow me. Sell it all and follow me. See, that tests the man's love for God. Do you keep the first four commandments? Really? Do you truly keep the first four commandments? Do you really love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Because God is standing right in front of you. Sell everything you own and follow me. Because see, your love for God is demonstrated in letting go of everything you own and coming and being my disciple. Your love for God is measured in full-throated submission to Christ. But this, as it turns out, is the one thing that he cannot do. So regardless of if you've kept all the commands, we, we might quibble with the second table of the law and whether you've really kept those or not. That's not Jesus' point. Jesus lets it go and says, okay, how about the first table? Really and truly, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you actually love God? Here's a man desiring some sort of assurance of eternal life, and what he has found is that mere obedience to the commands of the law are not giving him that. They're not giving him any kind of assurance. And when Jesus tells him, here's the assurance. You want assurance that you've got eternal life? Do you love me? He walks away sad because the only thing he's ever truly loved in his life are all the things that he owns. See, this is the heart of the problem with this man and his treasures. This is the heart of the problem with you and me. It's not merely the fact that he has a lot of things. 
but that he treasures a lot of things. See, this man is the antithesis of the parable that we saw a few chapters earlier in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy the field. The rich man we see running up to Jesus in Matthew 19 is the exact opposite. See, he's been introduced to God through the works of the law, and by his own record, he has kept them. Jesus, I've done all the stuff. I obey. I have followed to the letter to which Jesus asks, Yeah, but do you love me? Do you actually love me? And his answer in his actions is obviously no when push came to shove, and the, the answer to his question was right there, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He could not manufacture a love for God in his heart over his possessions. Because as it turns out, obedience does not produce love. But love of God does produce obedience. And love, as it turns out, love of God is the essence of salvation. It's a heart that is bent to deep and unadulterating love for God that is the essence of salvation. Not obedience. Obedience results from the love, but it doesn't cause the love. There are plenty of people in our churches who, who come, maybe even every Sunday, out of obedience. Well, this will certainly be true of our children, right? We know that this will be true of our children. They're made to come to church, most of them. As long as you're under my roof, you're coming to church. They come out of obedience. They're here because they're obeying you. But then they get older. They get a driver's license, maybe they go to college, and you see that they don't actually want to go to church. Maybe they never attend church again. And parents have this heart attack out of fear that maybe my kid isn't a Christian. Maybe he doesn't like the church. No, no, no. I remember the one time where he prayed the prayer. I remember one time when he got baptized. I remember specifically him saying that he believed in Jesus to brush that away. So then what can be the problem? And so parents will seek to blame all kinds of things on their kids leaving the church. It was the youth program. If only it was a more attractive youth program for our kids, then my kid would still want to go to church. Or perhaps they'll blame themselves. It's all my fault. I made him go. I forced him to go. I should have just let him choose whether to go or not. And if I hadn't forced it on them, he would be a Christian today. And so parents either have these long meetings with youth ministers all across the country, blaming them for their kid no longer being a Christian, or parents relenting and letting their kids 
stay home thinking that, hey, if I force them to go to church, then they're not going to want to be a Christian. Which makes about as much sense as letting them stay home from school thinking that if you force them to go to school, they won't want to be educated. It doesn't make any sense. The problem is, further back, we have conflated, like this rich young man, obedience with love. Repeating after me. Saying this, saying that, going to church. We have conflated obedience with love, and we've seen the obedience in our kids, and we've thought, that's love. They love God. Well, why don't they love God now? Obedience won't produce love. Love produces obedience. What we want is love. I don't want my kids to obey me merely because they fear me. I want them to love me. A Christian, as it turns out, obeys God because he loves God, not the other way around. And we put it the other way around. So when I preach obedience in the church, obey God, I may say, the person that loves God obeys because it's desirable for him. He's taking notes and he's thinking, okay, this is, this is where sin is in my life and I want to obey God, not out of some sense of obligation, but because I actually love God. It's desirable to me to obey. And to the person who doesn't truly love God, all they hear is moralism. Okay, this is what I've got to do to earn salvation. This is what I must do to be saved. What deed must I perform in order to be saved? You're in the place of this rich man. But you see, when the crisis of faith comes to you. When the crisis of faith hits you, the person who is obeying out of some strict sense of obligation will find themselves unwilling to follow Christ because there is no love for Christ there. Or when obedience is no longer mandated by your parents, let's say, you'll find yourself drifting away from the church. There's not a parent making me go, so I'm going to leave. Why? Because the love was never there to begin with. That's why. So the rich man leaves Jesus, realizing, perhaps for the first time, that rote obedience to the commands of God hasn't produced a love for God. That salvation isn't his really can't be his unless God does a work on his heart because he's realizing that his heart is bent on a love for things of this world over and against God. And Jesus turns to the disciples and says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, contrary to popular belief, he's not talking about some gate in Jerusalem that I know that's a common interpretation of this. He's not talking about that. He's talking about a massive animal going through a tiny little hole on the top of a needle. We, we would say something like, it's easier for an elephant to go through a keyhole than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. To which this blows the disciples' minds because it would seem, why, that a rich person who is obedient to the law should be the first one in line for the kingdom of heaven. Right? Wouldn't you think that? 
God has blessed him, obviously, because he's rich. And he says that he, he keeps the law. And then they hear Jesus tell him that he still lacks. Are you kidding? What does he lack? They have to then ask, well, then who could be saved? Who could possibly be saved? Jesus' response is pivotal to our understanding of what he's driving at. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In other words, this man can't manufacture the kind of love that the law demands. He can't manufacture it in his life. He can't turn his own heart to love me more than his things. He can't. Neither can you. You can't do it. You can't do it in your own life, and you can't do it in the life of your kid. But with God, all things are possible. God has been pushing elephants through keyholes and camels through eyes of needles since the foundation of humanity. He's the one that turns the heart. His parents... Don't be misdirected. Don't aim at the wrong target. Understand what the goal is. The goal is not rote obedience. Now, let me say clearly, while my kids are under my roof, they're going to church. But there's going to be a day where they're going to make their own decision. My job is not merely to produce obedience in them. It is to show them that. It is to demonstrate that. It is to make them obey and help them understand that there is authority above their own head. Always there will be. It is to demonstrate that there is godly authority that they are to submit to completely and totally. The Bible is abundant and clear about this in children's submission to their parents. They're made to go to church because we go to church as a family. But there will be a time when they're outside of my own house and the rote obedience that I've commanded of them will not be enough to save them. No, no, no. No. My hope, my only hope for their salvation is that they grasp their own sinful nature. My prayer is that the Spirit changes their heart That only in the event that God changes their heart and gives them spiritual eyes to see their own sin and their need for Jesus will they ever leave the things of this world and find Him a treasure and sell everything they own to buy the field. That's the only way it happens. You need to understand that. So my job is to show them what sin is. Tell them where they can find forgiveness in Christ, in Christ alone. And what we find there is a Savior whose arms are open wide, willing and ready to welcome them to salvation. Because that's true of you too. Have you ever come to a reckoning of your own sin? Have you ever had a moment where you sit down on your own couch and you just weep over the fact that you, you're convinced that you're not worthy of salvation. Newsflash, you're not. 
Because if you ever had to be worthy of your own salvation in order to be saved, we'd all be ruined. But in spite of that, Christ has saved us. God has sent His Son into the world to save us by suffering His wrath on the cross. The bar for salvation is not repeat after me. It's not ask Jesus into your heart. The bar for salvation is dependence on Christ and a deep and abiding love for God. And we depend on God's work through His Spirit to provide that. Lest we be like the rich man, leaving because our possessions are great. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for the work of your word to be sown into our hearts and not be snatched away. We know that so often it can be snatched away by temptation, by the deceit of riches, by Satan himself, or by our own deafness, it can be snatched away. And I pray that you would prevent that. I pray that the seed of your word would be sown deep into our hearts and there we would have fertile soil prepared by your spirit. That it would grow deep roots. That you would change lives. Father, I'm quite certain that there are many in our congregation, maybe teenagers, maybe adults, many in our congregation that are in desperate need of your Spirit's work in their heart. I pray you would provide it. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.